open up our Bible, and most of these Bible reading plans start in Genesis chapter 1. And so on the very first day that you start your Bible reading plan, there's a talking snake. And you're like, well, that's a little strange. But I've heard this story before, so I'll keep going. And then on day two, you have a long genealogy. You actually have two long genealogies. And then you get to just this peculiar little passage uh, about the Nephilim. And at that point, you're just like, what is happening here? I, I have no idea. And so it's really important for us that we tackle this and we see why God has this in the scriptures. I think God writes the scriptures for a purpose and that there is some meaningful things in this. In today's passage, we get to tackle not just one but two genealogies. We get to talk about polygamy, super long lifespans in chapter 5, which we spared Katerina from reading because it's also a lot of names, although she killed that. I mean, yeah. Um, super long lifespans, and, and the Nephilim, which is probably one of the strangest stories in the entire Bible. And so the title of today's sermon, usually the titles don't matter that much, but today the title of today's sermon is All the Weird Stuff. All the Weird Stuff. I just piled them all together into one sermon. And here's the thing. When we present Christianity, I try my hardest to not make Christianity any more weird than it already is or that it has to be. Try my hardest to make it not more weird than what we need to make it. But I also want to be very careful not to make it less weird than what it is. The reality is we believe some strange things. Uh, There's some things that are supernatural, that are beyond what we can understand. And so as we come to this text, I think that we need to be reminded that not everyone in the world would view the things that we just read as being all that strange. I think it's our Western society that oftentimes sees the supernatural as something to be suspicious. This might have a little bit of cultural snobbery as we come to these things. And so let's just keep an open mind as we study God's word in this passage. Just two, two points here today as we go through the passage and as we dive into all of this weird stuff. And it's what's with the genealogies? And then number two, what's with the Nephilim? What's with the Nephilim? What's with the genealogies? What's with the Nephilim? So with these genealogies, if you're reading the Bible through, you get to this long list of names that you can't pronounce, and you might have a temptation to skip the genealogies. That's a very natural temptation. It's one that I understand and I'm compassionate toward. It's one that I've felt myself. But that doesn't mean that they're not important. The author of Genesis uses the genealogies. There's a purpose for them being in there. That's not, it's not just random. But he puts them in there, and it's for a very specific purpose. And I think the first and primary purpose why the genealogies are included in this passage is to show the passage of time. The author of Genesis wants to go from Adam and Eve to Noah. But the author knows that there's a lot of stuff that happened between Adam and Eve and Noah. And so what he does is he does a time jump. It's like he's like, okay, new cast. We're going to continue the story. But it's like a little bit different now. There's a big time jump. And so what he does is the way that he does the time jump, generally, is by using genealogies. And so we have a time jump here in Genesis chapter 6. We have a time jump later in Genesis chapter 10, after the flood, going from Noah to Abraham. There's another time jump. Both of those time jumps include 10 generations to show that there has been a passage of time here. 
here actually in uh, Genesis 4 and 5, we have two genealogies. So Katarina read the first genealogy, which is the genealogy of Cain's line. And I decided uh, to, to skip chapter 5 because it would just be a lot of scripture reading for us this morning. But uh, in, in Genesis chapter 5, we have the genealogy of Seth's line. And so let's look at them both. I think that they actually are very uh, interesting. Uh, Cain's line starts in Genesis chapter 4, verse 17. And in Cain's line, there are seven generations listed, as opposed to Seth's that has ten generations listed. And in Cain's line, the ages aren't given, as opposed to Seth's line, where the people live for a very, very long amount of time. Now, if you'll remember from a few weeks ago, it's been a few weeks, Cain uh, rebelled, from his, uh, rebelled from God and uh, killed his brother, and then he was cast farther out of the people of God. And so Cain's line shows this de-evolution, this, um, this uh, devolving morality over here, while Seth is the third child of, of Eve that's mentioned in this story, and he's the promised, that's the promised line. So it's kind of like we have like the bad line and the good line in many ways. But as you'll see, this is actually a little bit more complicated than that. So Cain's line, you, we really can get two things from this. First the development of society, and second, the descent of morality. First, the development of society, and second, the descent of morality. After, um, or at least through verse 24, what we see is that even though Cain was out farther away from the people of God, they're kind of doing cool stuff. So verse 17 says that Cain founded a city. Verse 20 says that his descendants were developing methods of farming. Verse 21 says that they were playing musical instruments. Verse 22 says that they were building musical instruments. And so what are Cain's descendants doing? They're developing culture. They're developing society. They're doing good things the way that we might understand good. And it's a reminder to us that God uses some not-so-great people to do some pretty great things. Christians have started a lot of great things in the world. Christians are pretty much behind schools. Christians are pretty much behind hospitals, originally starting. But what about non-Christians? Are we to reject all the things that non-Christians have done? Non-Christians have created some excellent art. Most of my favorite musicians are not Christians. Non-Christians have formed some excellent uh, technological advances, some excellent medicine. Should we reject things that aren't done by Christians? And this passage is saying no, that, hey, sometimes God uses some not-so-great people to really come up with some great technological advances for all of society. Just, and it's a reminder to us, just because you have your act together, church, just because you're successful, just because you accomplish a lot, doesn't mean that you have all, life all figured out. Sometimes you can accomplish a lot, be very successful, and be still a million miles away from God, and your life is only going to last an instant, and then what will be demanded of you? In many ways, we can learn from this genealogy of Cain that though they were successful in building society, they were far from the Lord. And so we see this development of culture at the same time that we see a descent of morality. So their morality is going down the tube here. 
Because by the time we get to the end of Cain's line, we come to a character named Lamech. And Lamech is an interesting guy. This is the first time in the entire scriptures that you see someone take two wives. Lamech is a violent person. He's celebrating his immorality, his sexual immorality, and his vengeance. Now, some people in today's culture also celebrate some of these things. He's polyamorous, uh, Lamech is. Lamech is also uh, a justice crusader. You could just say that he's a sexually free justice crusader if you want to look at him like that. But God obviously does not smile upon Lamech and his behavior. My friend Claude, who used to pastor this church um, many years ago now, um, he said that Lamech was the first gangster rapper in history. Because when we get to Lamech, he's violent, he's sexually immoral, and then he sings a song about it. (laughs) Verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Listen to me, women. (laughs) You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Lamech's violence is intense. He's murdering people for merely wounding him. His judgment is more harsh, not of Cain's, but of God's. Remember, it's God who said, whoever strikes Cain down, I will, revenge, I will uh, revenge sevenfold. And so Lamech says, oh, God's got nothing on me. I got 77-fold. I'm going to bring it down on them if they strike me. It's, it's even more intense, not only in the volume of his revenge, but in what it is for. He says, not if someone kills me, but if someone strikes me. Someone hits me 77 times what they, what they get from me. Compare this with Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18. When his disciples come to him and say, Master, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? Even up to seven times? And Jesus says, not seven times, but 77. You should, you should forgive. And so with Cain's line, we see this development of society, but it's a descent of morality. Friends, far too many of us resonate with Lamech. We take out justice according to our own standards, all while God's grace is so much more for us. Though he is fully righteous and just, he does not pour out the full strength of his vengeance upon us. He is merciful. And so what we see with Cain is just things are spiraling out of control. They're going away. And what's happening is this basic pattern that we see in Scripture over and over again which is this, as people walk away from God and seek independence from God, morality descends. They start to define truth and define morality based upon their own terms and not upon God. They seek independence from God and everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And that's what we see happening here. As people move away from God's mercy God's kindness, his patience, and his love, which he displays over and over again, even in the book of Genesis, they move farther from being merciful, kind, patient, and loving. A principle that we see all over the place. 
They become selfish and ruthless, defining morality for themselves. Now let's move on to Seth's line. Seth's line is the entirety of chapter 5. If we look at the end of chapter 4, it says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And so what we see here is there is an alternate line. He's kind of backing up, starting over, an alternate line. And this line, people are calling on the name of the Lord. When you look at Seth's line, it's the entirety of chapter 5. It's kind of long, uh, but there's a pattern to it. There's, there's a rhythm to it. it verse 6, I'll just read this first, uh, this first part of it. It says, when Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after, his, after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had sons and other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. And this is the basic pattern. If you look at the passage, it goes over and over as it goes through the sons of Seth. And the first thing that you notice here is people are living a really, really long time. Like, either things were completely different back then, or the Bible's just not true, is the way that we have to read this. Uh, This all seems so exaggerated to us as we come to it with modern ears. And so I'm going to try to explain this. And what I want you to understand is that when you come to the Scripture, you come to the Scripture as someone who's been influenced and has only lived in the 21st century and 20th century, some of us. All right? We might have some 21st century only children uh, in here, but uh, you're not kids. You know, you could drink now and whatnot. But um, we come to it with modern eyes and ears. But what I want you to do as we go through the book of Genesis is to put on your ancient goggles and try to read the book as an ancient person would have read it. Ancient people were way more skilled at reading genealogies than we were, first of all. They understood kind of the subtleties of reading the genealogies. And so as we read it, we need to think about the way that they would have understood it in their cultural context. In Seth's line, there's 10 generations, a nice round number. The line of Seth is intentionally longer than the line of Cain. The line of Cain only had seven generations. And it's from this line that we get Noah eventually at the end. And thus we ultimately get Jesus. And as I mentioned, also after the story of Noah, there's another genealogy with ten generations, which seems significant and a little coincidental, that there would just be exactly ten generations between Adam and Noah and exactly ten generations between Noah and Abraham. Except for that's the way that they wrote genealogies back then, with um, an intentional number of generations between. So the Gospels include genealogies. At the beginning of the Gospel of, Mar- of Matthew, not Mark, at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew and Luke includes a genealogy. And they each are written for a different purpose. And if you look at the genealogy that's included in Matthew that goes from Abraham all the way to Jesus, what you would observe is that there's 14 generations between Abraham and David, 14 generations between David and the exile, and then 14 generations between the exile and Jesus. And so it's 14, 14, 14, except for we have very good written history for how many people actually lived in many of these generations. And if you look at the Bible's own teaching of the genealogy as you go through the Old Testament, you'll see that the author of Matthew 
intentionally skipped generations because he wanted to get to this nice round number of 14. The reason why he's getting to this nice round number of 14 is because he's writing to Jewish people, and these Jewish people honor and revere David. And so he's showing that Jesus comes from their fathers, the people that they honor and respect the most. Jesus comes from Abraham. He comes from David. He came through the exile. And so, but with the name David, it was originally three letters in the Hebrew, David, um, and each of those, if you sum up the numeric value of the letters, it's basically D, V, D. If you sum up the numeric value of those three letters, you get 14. And so an original reader, as they read this, they would have understood, this author's trying to point me to say that Jesus is the son of David, as they read this. And so they shaped the genealogy to prove a point. And here I think that the author's doing the same thing. Remember, this genealogy is here as a time jump. It's meant to show us that, hey, other stuff happened. We're getting, uh, we're moving on in the story. We're moving to Noah. And so they include exactly 10 generations, and each one is exceedingly old. Each person is very old. And these years, it's kind of interesting. The average age of the people in Genesis chapter 5 is right around 900. Uh, seems very old, uh, according to how I understand it. But to an ancient person, this would not have seemed old at all for a genealogy like this. Remember, this is the forefathers. This is where they all came from. And in society, uh, in ancient Near Eastern society, other areas had kings and forefathers that lived way longer than this. So if you look at a Samaritan genealogy. There are people that lived 43,000 years. And so the fact that these forefathers are only living less than a thousand, it pales in comparison. In fact, the emphasis of Genesis chapter 6 or Genesis chapter 5 is that after each one, it has these three words. At the end of each of these little, uh, each of these people, it says, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. One of them, it actually doesn't say any died. The only one is Enoch. He lives the shortest amount of time. And it says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And so Enoch, exempt from that, exception to the rule. But the general rule is, each of these people, they died. That the forefathers are not God's. And so why, are they, why do they have such long lifespans? Well, also if you look at the lifespans, it's very unlikely that they all live exactly these number of years. In fact, if you just try to do your own genealogy, if you look at your own generation, you get like to your great-great-grandparents, no one's quite sure, and in fact, they probably weren't even quite sure what year they were born in. Like people forget these sorts of things. When we read a number in the Bible, we have to remember that it's not, we can't read it with Western eyes thinking it's exactly what it says it is. These numbers are all, almost all rounded to five. Of the numbers, 21 of them end in a five or a zero. They're all divisible by five. The ones that aren't divisible by five, for the most part, if you subtract seven, which is like this perfect number, it becomes divisible by five. And so it's kind of, it, the statistical likelihood of that is very, very small. And so what most scholars say, and in fact, so there's two options, basically, church. There's two options for us who um, love the Bible, who trust the Bible, who believe the Bible. We do. The two options are, one, people just lived a really long time before the flood. And that is possible. Or, two, these are symbolic numbers, not meant to be misleading, 
we still believe in the truth of the scripture, but there's symbolic numbers that the original readers would have understood and that these years were honorific, saying these were great men who lived and, and who are our forefathers. And so as we read these numbers, it's an honorific number in that kind of way. I'll let you decide. That's an open-ended issue. We don't have an official uh, position on that as a church. Um, I have my opinion, and I'll give you more of it if you come to the Q&A. Jonathan has way more opinion on it than I do, Um, so he'll tell you more about it. He's written an entire uh, article about it, and and the Q&A should be a lot of fun. Let's do it. All right, so let's continue on. When we get to the 10th generation in in this uh, line of Seth, we get to, who's that? Lamech. Another Lamech. They just, na- they just named their family members the same things over and over. We see this happen a couple times in the Bible. But here, already, we're in chapter five of the Bible. We already have a couple of different names being used for multiple different family members. But this is a different Lamech. This is the Lamech of Seth's line. And this Lamech could not be any different than the previous Lamech. This Lamech um, honors the Lord. He lives 777 years, which, uh, if you remember, Lamech's vengeance was 77. And so this one is meant to show the stark contrast between the line of Cain and the line of Seth. And so with this one, with 777 years that he lived. And then he fathers Noah, which is a name that means rest. And he says, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Each of these people have carried the promise that the Lord gave to the woman, saying, from your womb will come the deliverer. And so with each child that's born, they think, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the deliverer, the one that's finally going to redeem us and rescue us from the serpent and the curse that God laid upon us. And Noah looks hopeful. He has the name Rest. He has the name rest, and maybe Noah will be the promised deliverer. While Cain's line ends in immorality and violence, Seth's line ends in hope. And so that's the genealogies. I hope it seems somewhat interesting to you. Now that the genealogies are over, we're not going to do more genealogies in Genesis, although I will preach genealogies again one day. Um, The author gets back to the story in chapter 6, and it's weird also. Um, this might be the weirdest passage in the entire Bible. So if you think that I'm just avoiding the weird things by saying that I think that these numbers could be symbolic and honorific, um, you're not going to think that I'm avoiding the weird things after this point, okay? So what's with the Nephilim? Let's look at it, church. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, And they took their wives, any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. All right. The sons of God saw the daughters of men were attractive, and they took their wives, any they chose. The assumption is that the children of these sons of God and daughters of man are the Nephilim. 
So who are these children, sons of God and who are the Nephilim? There's a couple different options here as well. The sons of God could be a couple of different things. Some people say that the sons of God are those from the line of Seth. So the daughters of man would be from the line of Cain, the evil line, and the sons of God, the godly line, are from Seth. This is clean, it makes sense. Maybe it's just showing that intermarrying between the two lines was not a good thing. They wanted to keep the line pure, whatever it might be. But it's very unlikely that that's actually true. Because there's just too much in the Bible pointing to the second option, which is the option that I hold. I guess this is an open-handed issue. It's not something that we would argue, I want to argue about really that much, but it's interesting because it's here. It's far more likely from the text that the sons of God are spiritual beings. Now, I'm taking a step short of angels, okay? I wouldn't necessarily say angels because I think there's more spiritual beings than just angels. But I think that there's spiritual beings created by God. Almost everywhere in Scripture that we see this Hebrew term used, sons of God, is talking about some sort of spiritual being. We see it pop up multiple times. And it's going to pop up again in Genesis 19. So I can't avoid it completely now because I have the very exciting passage of Sodom and Gomorrah coming up in a few months. And in that passage, you have sons of God who are spiritual beings coming, and they look like humans. And they act kind of like humans. And they have sexual desires like humans. And Jude And the the New Testament book of Jude, verses 6 and 7, pairs the story that we're reading now with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so you have to think these are the same people from the two different stories, potentially. Also, when you read the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are the oldest Hebrew manuscripts that we have, Dead Sea Scrolls, the history of the Dead Sea Scrolls is so cool. I don't know if you guys know about the Dead Sea Scrolls and how cool and significant they are. Basically, the oldest Hebrew manuscript that we had was only 1,000 years old. So we only had stuff that was published in like 1,000 AD. And then like in the 40s or something, like 1940s, some kid was like in a cave and he threw a rock and he heard something crash and he went in there. And there were these manuscripts from before the time of Jesus, twice as old, more than twice as old than anything that we had that was in the Hebrew. Entire scroll of Isaiah was found. It was amazing, and what it showed is that really, even though 1,000 years went by in, in between different historical manuscripts that we found, there were very, very few differences between what we had from 1,000 years later and what was recorded in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was just a magnificent moment to be a Bible scholar. Um, I wish I was there uh, with everyone in that moment. It's pretty cool sidetrack on the Dead Sea Scrolls. The notes on the side of the Dead Sea Scrolls in this passage uh, about this basically hold this position that they're spiritual beings that appear. This is, this might sound crazy to modern ears, but what most scholars think is happening is this is talking about fallen spiritual beings impregnating human beings and their offspring were called Nephilim. And they're described as mighty warriors of old. And that would sound somewhat familiar to an ancient person. As an ancient person is reading this, they, they would say, well, I know other stories of people who think that they're half divine and half human, uh, such as Gilgamesh, a Samaritan king, who, said, who was uh, rumored to be two-thirds divine and one-third human. Whoever these Nephilim are, God did not approve. And Q&A is going to be fun today. Um, 
one primary theme of the Bible that I want you to see from this. One primary theme, and it's an important one, and it's one that we need to think about, is something that happens over and over again is humans want to reach out and to become divine apart from God. We all have a desire to be God ourselves, to seek the divinity independent of God. There are intentional echoes between Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, Eve saw that the fruit was good and she took. In Genesis chapter 6, we have the, the sons of God seeing the daughters of man and taking them. It's intentionally showing that this boundary between the divine and the humanity and humanity is being crossed. This time it's being crossed from the divine perspective, saying we're going to take from the humanity and bring the two together. But this was all out of bounds because it was not by God's terms. And this is ripe ground for what we know as the incarnation, which is God, on God's term, the divine becomes human. Look, we believe a lot of weird things. We believe that through the power of the Holy Spirit, a virgin young woman named Mary was impregnated and gave birth to a divine human, 100% God, 100% man. It was not taken out of man's terms, but it was taken from God's terms. He gifted us with this pathway to divine life. And he said, through Christ, you will know me. You see, the, the, the story of the Nephilim with the sons of God is that's a selfish doing it on our own terms. Spiritual beings taking it into their own hands. But God says, I'll give you what you are most longing for. And the reality is, we believe even stranger things than what's in this passage, because that God-man, Jesus Christ, we believe that he was resurrected from the dead, that he died, that he laid in a grave. On the third day, when he should be decomposing, he got up from his grave, and he walked, and he lived, and he had holes in his hands that he could show, that you could stick your fingers into. That this God-man then 40 days later, ascended into heaven. Look, if you have problems with the son of, with spiritual beings and all this stuff, you're gonna have a lot of problems when we get to Jesus because Jesus did some amazing things. This Jesus character, we believe, is going to return to earth riding on a horse in the sky. Sounds crazy. But we believe some crazy things. We don't want to make Christianity more weird than it needs to be, but we also don't want to remove the weirdness from it because there's beauty in all of these things. So in this passage, what we're seeing up until this point is just the downfall of humanity, even in the line of Seth. And we're seeing this intermarrying between spiritual beings and and humans, and people taking things into their own hands, independence from God, rebelling from God. We see violence. And the question is, how does God respond as he sees all of this evil that's on earth? Well, first, in verse 3, he says, the Lord, it says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. We can understand this in two different ways. One, he could be shortening the lifespan of humans, even though the Bible records humans as living longer than that later on in the, this story after the flood. 
humans do continue to live longer than that. Abraham is recorded as living 175 years. Um, or we can understand this as like the timer is now ticking until the flood. So humans are only going to live 120 more years, basically. Timer's ticking. Flood is coming. And that's probably the better way to understand it here. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It cannot be a stronger declaration. He says, every intention of his heart is only evil continually. That's not he had some bad in him. That's humans are just wanting their own things all the time. They're selfish. Every heart is continually. It doesn't get stronger than that. Verse 6, and the Lord regretted. He was grieved. He was saddened. The Lord's not a robot. He regretted. It grieved him. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. This mighty spiritual being who is God has a heart in that sense. He can feel things, and he feels grief because it's like a disappointed father to his children. Seeing his children rebel, feeling griefed. It's like a, a lover who sees his bride running away, chasing their own independence, doing their own thing, feeling grief. And so verse 7, he says, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But it ends in just a glimmer of hope, because that sounds really down. And then you get to verse 8, and it's the same glimmer of hope that we had in the genealogy just a moment ago. And it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So this whole passage, this is just, you know, this is like the um, preview for the story of Noah. This is all leading to the story of Noah. And Noah is their deliverer here. The one representative who is righteous, who saves all of humanity. And we see that as a constant thread that it's not just a setup for Noah, but it's ultimately a setup for Jesus, who is one of Noah's great children, great, great, great grandchildren. And we have this theme in the scripture that God saves humanity over and over again, not because they are righteous, not because you are righteous, not because I am righteous, but through a righteous representative. We have one who will save us. God saves humans through single righteous representatives. When our sin was spiraling out of control, when every intention of our heart was just selfishness, was just me-centered, was just wanting what I want, when I was defining truth myself, deciding what is good and evil for myself, coming up with my own man-made religion, which was really just a, a grab bag of different religions that I thought sounded good to me, I was pursuing my own path, wicked, Though I didn't think I was that way, when my sin was spiraling out of control, my morality was descending, God sent a righteous representative for me. 
and through him I've known grace. Though we've grieved God, he's patient with us. Though we've loved ourselves only, he loves us in spite of ourselves. His mercy is more than anything that any of us could ever deserve. He has gone out of his way to rescue us, though we did not Seek him on our own. He has made himself known to us. In church, he might be making himself known to you today, even as you're here in this weird lecture, weird sermon on genealogies in Nephilim. Are you going your own way, deciding what is right and wrong for yourself, refusing to listen to his good direction, refusing his presence and the power of his spirit? Is he speaking to you now, saying, I have a righteous representative? You don't have to prove yourself before me. See your sin, but know that it's not up to you to just get your act together, but Christ has gone before you, and through him, we will be saved. God's mercy is so much more than what we deserve. As the hymn says, what love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins there are many. His mercy is more. What patience would wait as we constantly roam. What father so tender is calling us home. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins there are many. His mercy is more. And church, I know that this is a bit crazy, but unless you get that, unless you get that you're in a similar place to the line of Seth, to the line of Cain, when God looks at you, it grieves his heart that you've gone your own way. You'll never put your hope in the righteous deliverer and the promised one to conquer the serpent. Church, by faith in Christ, we're united with God. The divine We're invited into divine life through God's terms, through the God-man, Jesus Christ. Because his body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us, he opened a way, a gate, so that our life, our body might be spared, our blood might be spared. On the night that he was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took a cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so each week at our church, we practice a sacred meal, reminding ourselves that it's only through the broken body and blood of the God-man, Jesus Christ, that we get to have peace with God. Only through that. Not through our, God, our man-made religion and decrees, our man-made righteousness and justice. And so this week, church, if you are a Christian, if you're a believer in Christ, we invite you to come and receive this, to be reminded that his body was broken for you, his blood was shed for you. Church, let's stand, let's pray as we sing God's praises and respond with this invitation to the meal. God, we we pray that as we come to your table, that our hearts will be open to what you have to show us. I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you in a personal kind of way, who hasn't walked through the righteousness of Christ alone, who doesn't wear the robe of righteousness that Christ offers to give us. We pray that they will put that on so that they might know a taste of the divine life. And God, as we 
try to find out what is righteous, what is morality. God, lead us in your ways. We want to be near you. We want life with you. We don't want to grieve your heart any longer. So count Christ's righteousness as our own and help us to live by faith in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.